Welcome to the HDFS Careers Podcast, the podcast featuring informal conversations with family science majors about their professional journeys. My name is Erica Jordan. Today, I will be sharing my interview with Haley Stout. I met Haley through her colleague, Dr. Jacqueline Benson at the University of Missouri. Dr. Benson saw a post about the podcast on Facebook and responded with several great recommendations. So a big thanks to her. Haley currently works in the field of HIV STD prevention. She earned a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in human development and family studies from the University of Missouri-Columbia. In this episode, she shares her broad variety of professional experiences so far, including serving in the Peace Corps. Without further ado, here's her interview. Well, welcome to the podcast, Haley. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk to me. Um, for the sake of time, we're going to go ahead and jump right into the interview. Can you tell me a little bit about how you first discovered the field of human development and family studies? Yeah, so interestingly, when I was an undergraduate and trying to figure out um, what degree program I was going to go into, you know, first I thought social work or sociology. Um, and then what happened was I was it, one of the jobs that I was working at there was a graduate student um, who came to work um, with me, uh, you know, at my job to have to pay my way through college. Um, and she was actually a graduate student in the HDFS program at, at Mizzou. Um, and when I was talking to her, I was still, you know, I think I was a sophomore at the time and still I was, you know, kind of undecided as to what I wanted to do. And she started telling me about the HDFS program. She's like, you know what, it sounds like you need to be in my program. And she told me about it. And the rest is history, as they say. Um, she was absolutely right. She set me up um, uh, for a meeting with who became my uh, academic advisor, and I went into the program, and I'm so very happy that I did. Wow. So what did you love so much about it? Well, I don't know how nerdy you want me to get, but I'm um, pretty <laughs> sure that the first HCFS class that I walked into and Yuri Brockenbrenner's uh, ecological model was up, I was like, finally, somebody who's speaking to the idea of a holistic approach and understanding the different layers of how a person is impacted. Um, it's, it's almost, I mean, probably there are a lot of people who are academics that might want to, you know, stomp on my toe for this, but it almost seemed like psychology, sociology, almost in a combination. And it looked at both the individual and the family and the family dynamics. And I guess that I personally have a tendency to look at things systematically and then mm -hmm. if you're just focusing on one thing, then you're not going to get the solution or, you know, some type of plan in place, um, you know, that's going to be good for that person or that family. So th that's actually, that's it. I mean, that model in and of itself, it was like, oh, <laughs> I know. I love Bronco Runner's model too. It is awesome. I mean, it's like, okay, finally. Yes. Like you said, somebody's looking at everything, all of the pieces of the puzzle. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, okay, so you mentioned that you worked during college. I know that that's a lot of people's college experiences. Can you tell us, I mean, you, you don't, you only need to get as specific as you want, but can you tell us a little bit like what you were doing in college, like um, how you paid your way through school um, by working? And then also, were you involved in any volunteer opportunities or internships, just anything else you want to talk about what you were doing besides going to class? Okay, so, you know, this is actually really foundational for the trajectory of my career and the, you know, the long gap in um, before I went back to graduate school and stuff. So I was a non-traditional undergrad and I was married. 
Um, I was also the breadwinner. So I actually worked in business management for some uh, pretty cool companies. I, I was a store manager of a Toys R Us store. So it was super fun. I could ride a bike around when I checked the store at night. But yeah, but I was, in, you know, so I was in management. And to be honest, I could only take 12 credit hours a semester. I couldn't do 15 because it would have my, my academics would have suffered from that. And so I did that all the way through my undergraduate. Um, when I graduated, I had just finished up an internship working at a uh, women's shelter mm -hmm. um, with an anonymous location. So I'd been doing ex partes. I was trained to meet women at the emergency room to help them through a rape kit and stuff like that. And that was something that I wanted to do, but I just, I didn't find a job in that field. And to be quite frank and honest, business world paid me more money and I was supporting a husband that was also in college. Yeah. And so the, it kind of all came together that Toys R Us, we sell toys for kids and they had a position where I could stay in my management role, but get a promotion and start teaching age appropriate toys. So I was using my human development background. Mm. Um, and so it, you you no, know, it was very business heavy, but I also was able to go around to different stores in the region and help the sales associates understand, you know, even baby safety products, um, but teach them, you know, like I said, age appropriate toys and, and things to understand and look out for. And this was a time when we were really starting to learn a lot about autism and stuff because this was in the early 2000s when we, this was really this information was kind of coming to light. And so Although I did not go directly into a human development field, I started to use that. Um, I used my education, uh, but I was also in business management. Um, I, yeah. I um, love this because, and it's something that I say at the end of every podcast, um, it's like, I tell people do not worry. Like I want to hear multiple people's stories and don't worry if they're not quote unquote in the field of HDFS because our, as you mentioned, when you mentioned Bronfenbrenner, the degree is so interdisciplinary. It touches on everything. Like, yes, absolutely. It's still relevant for business. And that's so cool that you were able to um, engage in that training for associates and utilize your background of development, child development. That's great. Yeah, and I think that also people who have a human development and family studies degree, um, if you, anybody who's out there that's listening to this understands that the best managers and leaders are also people who understand people have families um, and can have a little bit of flexibility, like when it comes to scheduling. Um, and, you know, I think now that we're, you know, 2020, we're understanding that we have technology where people can work for home and that might be better for somebody who has childcare or elder care. I mean, in somebody who has a family studies background working in business management and having to do that, I think that it's probably the reason why I ended up doing so much of the HR roles because people knew that, you know, that they could come and, and, and talk to somebody who, who understands their, that they do have a life outside of work. So, yes. Yeah. I love that. That's great. Yeah. So you're doing that while you're in school, my goodness, and you're the yeah. breadwinner. Um, so did you all have to do... Um, oh, okay. No, no, you already mentioned, yeah, your work experience. And so then like, as you're approaching graduation, what mm -hmm. is kind of your vision? What is your plan? And then what do you end up doing? So honestly, I was freaking out. Um, and I, w I do want to say this, I was the breadwinner, but my husband did the laundry and the cooking and the cleaning. So we did, we did have a very balanced relationship there. That's awesome. Um, you know, I, I definitely worked the second shift, but so did he. Um, um, so, um, yeah, I think at, the, at that point in time, really, there was this actually a certain level of excitement to be able to work full time. Um, 
you know, and not have to also study. Um, but what's interesting, what happened was, so I went ahead and I accepted that job during my last semester, right before I accepted the promotion in that job. So I was in, but a couple years into this business job, what I came to realize was I wasn't actually fulfilled. And so I started doing a lot of volunteering. So I did not have the opportunity to do a lot of volunteering when I was in school. Mm -hmm. But once I graduated, I started volunteering with the National Organization for Women um, and did some, I think women's, women and children's advocacy is something that is always, that will always be something that I strive to do. Yeah. Um, you know, no matter where I'm at in my career, you know, if there's times when I can't give time, I'll probably give money if, uh, you know, I can. Um, but that was it. That was what kept me fulfilled because my job did transition very much so into business and out in a way, like it was like the longer I was in business, the more I got promoted and the further I got from actually working with families. And so the volunteerism that I did was kind of like a gap. Um, and I was really interested in political advocacy and stuff like that. And that's when I, um, I decided that, you know what, every single day off I got, I'm studying for the GRE and I'm gonna go back to school. So I actually took like, um, I think like six years off between undergrad and graduate school. Okay. And you were working in the business world, but then also volunteering. Um, yeah. Yeah. You get so many interesting experiences volunteering. I'm finding that, you know, the more people who I talk to and then also my personal experience too. Um, okay. So then you decide you take the GRE presumably, and then you do end up applying to graduate programs and you decide mm -hmm. to pursue human development at the master's level. Yeah, and it was kind of interesting because um, the program that I was in, they were in the process of changing the different graduate programs that were available. Um, and so um, really what I had, I ended up doing an emphasis in administration of human services. My um, my mentor and, uh, you know, professor was willing to let, like, help me to modify my course load since I had such a business management and administrative background already mm -hmm. that, that they were able to, um, you know, let me take my elective classes so that it ended up, basically, my emphasis ended up being administration of human service programs. Okay. Um, but, but it was out of a human development family studies program. So you just, you go through that program. What is your experience like in that graduate program? It was awesome because I quit working and became, I was finally, um, they were able to help me get assistantships um, to help uh, be able to pay for my school and give me, you know, a little bit of money to live on. I mean, anybody who's, who's an assist, graduate assistant knows it's not a lot, but hey. Yeah. Um, but it was like, I finally got that whole college experience that I couldn't afford to get when I was an undergrad mm -hmm. because I was working so much. Um, and so I really felt like I was a part of the university community and network and the assistantships that I got were absolutely perfect. Um, I worked part-time at the Center for Family Policy and Research uh, at the University of Missouri, which is an exceptional program. Um, they do a lot of work uh, to help advocate on behalf of families. They produce a lot of policy briefs that are shared with uh, the state legislature, um, and they have uh, fellows from all over the states, from the entire University of Missouri uh, system. So, you know, St. Louis, Kansas City, and of course the University of Missouri. Um, so it was a wonderful, you know, graduate experience and, um, you know, kind of an honor to be a part of that. But then I also uh, helped teach some of the classes. I was also a TA 
um, and um, was a member of uh, the University of Missouri's uh, NCFR program. Um, National Council on Family Relations. Yes, yeah. I'm sorry, I used an acronym. We all no, do no, that. No, 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 um, <laughs> no problem. But yeah, it was nice to be able to really participate and engage in the educational experience and just to be a part of it. So it was my graduate school and my undergraduate school were day and night different. Yeah, yeah. You could finally just, yeah, just holistically focus on all the different aspects that um, the university setting has to offer. Mm -hmm. And so then you're progressing towards the end of your master's program. And so what are you, what are your plans? How are you feeling? What do you end up doing right afterwards? Well, honestly, if I could say this as <laughs> I did something kind of stupid, um, <laughs> which I'm saying this to all the women in the world out there. So I had been married for 10 years at this point in time. And my, my husband, who is now my ex-husband was about to uh, go active duty military. And so partway through, I strayed away from my goal of going into policy and started really doing military family research, okay. um, which was because, hey, I've been married for 10 years. This is going to last forever. Right. So and I knew we were going to be as soon as I graduated, moving to a military base and then I could start working with military families, which is exactly what happened. Wow. Um, and so I spent um, three years uh, working for um, Army Community Service, which is essentially, if you think about all the different ways that we want to look at helping families. So it has a financial readiness program. It has, um, they have counseling there. Um, they have uh, um, like folks that can help with new parent support. Um, Basically, if you think about kind of any human services in like a county or a local government area, the Army also has that for, for their families. And so I essentially, I went to work in that program and I did a lot of work with pre and post deployment and helping families through separations, you know, deployment separations and stuff like that and was able to use the, the education in that. Um, and then I got divorced and was like, okay, well, I'm not ever going to live around military families again. <laughs> um, what do I really want to do? Let's do some soul searching here. And that's how I ended up in the Peace Corps. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, first of all, let me say, I am so excited to talk to somebody who actually did that work in the military because I've always told my students like, yes, there are these positions where you can support families in the military, right. but I never met anybody who'd actually done it. So cool that I've stumbled into meeting you. I'm excited to hear about that. Yeah. And I was a military, my dad was in the military, but we were a peacetime nation. This was back at East, you know, so I did kind of have a military, I understood protocols and stuff like that, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely a career path and there are different universities. I think if I don't name them all, I'll probably get in trouble, but I think like Purdue might have a, a program, but there's different universities who really specialize in military family research Yeah. Um, and stuff. Basically, you can just look up some papers and you'll see the universities that these folks are coming from, but there's a lot. It was, what was really cool was coming out of an academic program uh, in graduate school where we're studying the latest research from these exceptional, um, you know, families studies, professors, and then going to work and actually applying what you learned. That was the coolest thing I've got to say, is that so much when you're in school, it's very academic and there's kind of like, well, is this really, you know, can you apply this? Is this information that you can apply? And, and I felt like I was able to apply all of the things that I learned in graduate school right out the gate. And honestly, I apply it in my job every day. Um, 
but that was the coolest thing about going to work after graduate school was applying what I learned. Yeah, that's really cool. Okay, so now you end up in the Peace Corps. Yeah, so I would say first and foremost, it is not for everybody. Um, I had always had a dream of living and working in Africa. Um, and, you know, I think I've kind of uh, stated before, you know, I was able to, at this point in my life, uh, based on my circumstance, really do some self-reflection. And I wanted to do women's economic empowerment mm. um, to bring together my passion for supporting women and even my business background. And um, I also knew that, you know, in especially in, in Sub-Saharan Africa, which was a region that just was of most interest to me, elephants are there, not gonna lie, that's part of it. <laughs> um, you know, but this was a region that I felt like I could really, um, you know, contribute to and, and, and help people. I mean, you know, the simplest put, my dream is always to have a job where I help people, yeah. you know? Um, and so what happened was, you know, in this region, it is extremely adversely affected by HIV and STD. And this is still a pandemic. Um, it's, it's even a little micro pandemic in the region of the country where I live in now. Um, but so what I was assigned to do was, I, I don't know how, my, for some reason, everything seems to come together. Uh, for me. I've been blessed, very, very blessed for this, but I ended up going to a wonderful country called Botswana, um, and uh, it's a middle-income country, so today's Peace Corps is not the same as the 1960s Peace Corps. Um, it, it, there's still a lot of development that's going on, but um, I, for the most part, had running water every day and electricity. They'd give us a heads up if it was going off. That's not the same in all places that the Peace Corps serves. There's still, there's still hardship associated with it, but I was assigned to a women's run organization um, that that is that works with HIV uh, positive folks um, and also does prevention. And every job that the Peace Corps assigns to this particular country is related to HIV because it is a middle income country, but it has the third highest prevalence rate of HIV in the world. Wow. And internationally, the the number one demographic for contracting HIV is adolescent girls and young women. And as a, as somebody who is a pretty passionate advocate for women, um, I, we know immediately why that demographic is the most vulnerable. Um, they have the least amount of control over their lives to include their sexual reproductive health. Um, and there's still a lot of um, inequality uh, between genders in different places that is very um, you know, it's, this is, this is historic. And even though in a lot of countries, these things are progressing and more girls are going to college or, I mean, not college, just going to school period, but you know, in these places. So, so because HIV was one of the biggest, um, challenges for these women, it just, I ended up basically doing women's advocacy work and child advocacy work uh, in the field of HIV. And wow. so now I have moved in, into my, and now I've transitioned into my next career. Yeah. Um, I, I fell in love with it. It was amazing. So. I mean, and that's so cool too, how you even saw that opportunity again, bringing in your former business background, because yeah, everything always does seem to connect together in the end. <laughs> um, you can always right. build on your former experiences. And so, so yeah, you're able to have this amazing experience. So you serve for how many years in the Peace Corps? 
So the Peace Corps is usually a 27 month assignment, three months of training, and then two years in a village that you're assigned to. Okay. Um, I, I was um, very honored and they, I was given an opportunity to do an extension year uh, in the, in the capital um, working for uh, PEPFAR, the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief. So I was still a Peace Corps volunteer, but I basically fell under the embassy program. Um, this is PEPFAR is the organization that ambassador Burks, uh, Dr. Burks, you see her on TV every day. She's the global ambassador to HIV and AIDS. It's the organization that she oversees how she's doing that while she's also doing all this COVID stuff. I don't know. Um, but it was a real honor. It was a real honor to be able to work in that program and basically help coordinate the HIV care and prevention activities. Um, in the country in in partnership with their Ministry of Health, with Global Fund, with the CDC, USAID, and all the other organizations that were in there. It was a phenomenal experience. It sounds like it. And I'm sure that it was, there was a lot of variability within your roles. Um, but yeah. I guess like what would be kind of like a typical day or week or what are some typical tasks like that you were doing in order to to drive that effort forward right so i there their day and night difference between you know working in a u.s embassy compound and living in a village so i'll maybe kind of go back to my village life um because i think that the things that worked in in the village are things that people who have a family studies uh degree and background and that kind of passion really they they have to kind of know and understand certain skills so when you're a, a foreigner essentially you're an american and you're dropped into a totally different community and they've asked for you to come and help but you're there to help them you're not there to americanize them mm -hmm. you're to help do skills development i mean the the motto of uh, you know the peace corps um you know the commitment is is that we help build the the skills of the folks in the countries that we go and help um, so in order to do that there are some things that probably people in family studies programs will go right back to you have to do a community assessment right yeah right so you've got to go and get into the community you've got to network this could take three to six months i mean you're a foreigner people aren't going to open up and tell you the truth about what the problems are you know, especially as an American uh, who walks in and just starts asking questions, you have to build the trust with the community. So I did a lot of sitting under trees, uh, talking to people, uh, just getting to know them. Anytime I was invited to something, I was invited to a wedding, I was invited to a funeral, I was in, wherever I was invited, I'd go. I was invited to church, I went to church, you know, just to really get to know everybody and understand that. And just like the AmeriCorps Vistas, um, you know, they, they work with, um, they work in the field of poverty here in the U.S. and they, they're, they're paid at that level, right? Mm -hmm. um, the Peace Corps, we live at the same level as the folks in our village. Okay. So, you know, we're right there in the community. Um, and so that's really kind of how the day started. And then once it starts and you start, you, you get your networking going on, you've got your community assessment. It goes to the tribal leadership, the local government leadership. You, you say, here's what I found. These are, you know, like three or four goals that I have for my two years of service. Can you support me with this? And they say, thumbs up or thumbs down, or, hey, how about just these two of the four? And then and from there, you now have the buy-in from the leadership in the community. And I think that 
this is the exact same thing. If you want to be involved in community activism, we are at a very turbulent time in our nation. Any time you want to make some type of change or some type of social change, you've got to start at the grassroots level. You've got to get the right people involved. You've then got to go and get the, you know, like the gatekeepers of the community yeah. um, and, and the leaders involved and, and make sure everyone's included when you come up with solutions. Um, this is a very bottom up type approach. And it's one of the things that I love the absolute most about being in the Peace Corps um, was because it, it was like I had been involved in community activism and stuff. And it really matched that that spirit of, you know, involving the people who are affected or impacted by whatever you're trying to change. Yeah. Um, and so I really cherish the experiences and the relationships that I made in the village um, it just, it very much, like I said, the Peace Corps is not for everyone. <laughs> a lot of people wouldn't have the patience to spend six months waiting to get, you know, this, this chief or this minister, uh, you know, the, the health director or whatever to sign off on something because things do move at a much slower pace um, in the rest of the world. A lot of people wouldn't have the patience to, to wait on that. They could be like, we know this needs to be done. Let's do it. But in order to do it correctly, in, in order for it to last when you leave, mm -hmm. right? Because you don't want to go in and do something and, you know, they all do it while you're there and then you go back to America and, and there's no sustainability to it. Right. The only way that you have sustainability is to, to go the slower route and include all the right people in the process. So that's maybe a little bit more than what you asked for. That's not just today, but that's kind of a snapshot of, of it and, and kind of how I... I don't know. It's, I guess it's just really the way that I see how to be an effective Peace Corps volunteer, but also effective for any type of community mobilization or action. No, that is amazing information. I mean, I love, I, I feel like I can really get a good sense of, yeah, like what your experience was like and you speak so passionately about it. I know I love hearing all of those details. <laughs> um, okay. So when you're wrapping up your your time in the village, um, you then go to the, the president's office and you said that was a, a very different kind of work experience there. Uh, yeah, and just to clarify, it wasn't the president's office. Oh. It, was the pre it, was, it was PEPFAR, the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. And at the time I started working there, Obama was the president, so, okay. uh, but, but, but I didn't work for him. Okay, gotcha, <laughs> I, PEPFAR. I, <laughs> right. Yeah. I worked for PEPFAR. Um, and so that was really cool. So basically all those things that we did from that grassroots level in the village was just very much so big picture. So PEPFAR funds all of the HIV activities in the country that go to the CDC, USAID, Peace Corps, and uh, DOD. Um, and they they basically work as a coordination office. So I was in the coordination office. So they coordinate all the funding that's coming in from the U.S. government they trickle it down to these different agencies. They trickle it down to uh, the Ministry of Health there, which the, the country that we were in, they pay for 80% of their HIV burden. Mm. Um, so they had a lot of economic needs. So we did a lot of capacity building. Um, the CDC and USA did a lot of capacity building uh, with the local government to try and help them uh, to be self-sufficient um, in fighting this epidemic. But the epidemic is still so huge they do need help okay. um, our office also coordinated um, you know the 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 EU um, has funds that come in uh, to the country some of the different embassies 
have different funding that they that they donate to, towards the epidemic, and then also global fund. So global fund, the U.S. government actually pays into too. Um, but probably people know this is, you know, the very large, we're talking about millions of dollars, we're talking about lots and lots of money here. Mm -hmm. So to make sure that we don't waste the taxpayer's money, um, which foreign aid is less than 1% of our budget. So, um, but anyways, to make sure that it's most efficiently used, we coordinate with everybody. Okay. Um, and so that's our job to make sure that we're not like if, if global fund is supplying us funding to a community based organization in this region and they're taking on the HIV effort there, then then our PEPFAR is going to focus on a different region because that region is already covered. OK, um, so there was a lot of what you would call interagency coordination. Um, also, every year you have a new budget. And so you have to, we, we would have to put together these meetings and there would be over 200 people in these meetings that we would organize. Oh my and we would start out with education because you involve the people who are going to receive services. This is crucial for anybody who's working with families. You've got to include the families who are going to receive the services in the planning in the decision making, you've got to, to ask them to assess your programs regularly so that you can update them and revise them. So we would have folks who are gonna be receiving the services. We would have local advocacy groups. We would have community-based organizations who, you know, the money may go from PEPFAR to, the, to USAID and then USAID may fund, you know, subcontract out, uh, you know, like a, a community-based organization or an FHI 360 or PCR or whatever. So, but you've got to, um, you know, you've got to include all these folks in the, in the decision making process. So, so you start out with, with all these people in one room and you provide all the latest data and information and then you got to go into breakout sessions. Okay, this group is really interested in working with adolescents. This group wants to work with the LGBTQ community. This group wants to work with that. So you find your different, then you have to break everybody up into focus groups. And, and then you, I don't know, then you have to write up your budget plan. Um, and it ends up being hundreds and hundreds of pages, yeah. you know, cause you have to include everybody's group. So the, the key word is coordination and trying to keep back, uh, keep track of everybody and, and writing a massive document where you've got, you know, 20 to 30 people who are writing on it and trying to make sure it's one voice when you submit it to the, to the U S government for approval and stuff. So that's kind of more of like what my day to day was at PEPFAR. Okay, at PEPFAR. Um, and yeah. And I mean, I'm just sitting here thinking, I'm going back to when you worked at, walked into that class, that HDFS class, with that Bronfelbrunner's model, because now, I mean, imagine mm -hmm. the impact. Like, yeah, you are literally working at the system level to coordinate so yes. many different things in you know, a family's environment and also including families people who will be receiving the services. So it's like, at this point, <laughs> it feels very full circle to me. Like you're, you're actually able to have your hand um, involved in, you know, so many different levels of, of those systems. So that's really cool. And this is the reason why I tell all of the people who interview me and have given me jobs and opportunities, please make sure that you include HDFS, human <laughs> development, family studies, yeah. not just public health and not just social work. Yes, we love them include too. us human development people yeah. because we get it. Uh, yeah, yeah, you're right. It, it's been it's it's exactly full circle. Wow. And yeah, 
Okay, so as you are preparing to leave, at, you know, leave your Peace Corps assignment in Africa, you know, what does that look like? How are you feeling? And then just how do you transition out and transition to a new role back into the States? Yeah, so I'm going to be really honest. People who know me know that I'm a little bit intense. Okay. <laughs> so I was scared to death. This <laughs> is like, because, you know, you... I mean, you've had this a job and um, I did have to, I did actually go to the National Council on Family Relations. I went to one of their conferences, the one that was up in uh, Canada. Uh, but for the most part, I, I had, and I had come back to the U.S. once, uh, but for the most part, I had been abroad. The, I mean, the furthest that I went from Africa, I think, was to Thailand and you know, that's still very different from America. So I was very worried about reintegrating back into the U.S. because I had worked with military families who soldiers had really struggled with reintegration yeah. uh, back into normal lives. Now, I do not want to care, can, you know, compare the Peace Corps. Like if you're getting shot at and literally scared to death, um, that's very, very different than being in the Peace Corps. But yeah, the idea of re re you know reintegrating back into American society and culture was something that I was a little bit scared about. But I am a money worry wart, <laughs> so I was like, my gosh, I got I got to find a job, you know. And I my goal was to have a job before I got back to the U.S., which kind of didn't really work. I had a job interview, but I didn't have a job um, r right when I got back. But that was kind of um, my first goal and. Uh, I, I actually applied for the job that I have right now when I was still in Africa. Okay. Um, and it is essentially what I was, it's a combination, it's, it's a combination of what I was doing in my village and what I was doing for PEPFAR. So my entire Peace Corps service, if, if I were to write up the, the, the skills and things like that, that I used every day to do my job, it is essentially what I'm doing right now. I work, uh, you know, for the, for a regional network of HIV care and prevention. And what that is, is it's a, they, they've set us aside 11 counties and the federal government funnels money into a region. And because they know that every community, every county, every region has different needs. They don't want the CDC and HRSA do not want to dictate to us what we have to do in our area to help people, but they have to give us guidelines, yeah. right? So they give us the money and the guidance on how the money can be used. But then us as a regional network, um, you know, we have over 20 active agencies from uh, like Duke and UNC to local health departments to community-based organizations. Um, I think there's like almost 16 that are directly funded. Oh, FQHCs, um, which are, um, these are federally qualified health centers. Uh, these oftentimes in rural areas um, or in urban areas, and they provide a lot of services to low-income uh, individuals who maybe don't have health insurance or can't afford health insurance, and so these agencies are, are part of it. So basically, we're back to, like I was explaining, those meetings, you know, from doing the community assessment in my village to the meetings, that's what we do, Yeah, is we come together as a regional network, and I help to coordinate these meetings and like, for example, we're getting ready to have another grant come out this year that we have to write together. And they'll say, okay, you've got X amount of money for this and this. And then all of these agencies, we come together, we get whiteboard out, we get, you know, we just come together and figure out how we're going to do this. And then we write the grant together and submit it. And then once we receive the funding, my job then switches to more of an administrative role where, you know, I check billing, I make sure that 
that um, you know our targets are being met. Whatever deliverables we've yes. we've signed up for are being met. You're doing whatever you said you were going to do. Right. So administrative and coordination. Yeah. Okay. Essentially. Yeah. And so, so yeah, that's amazing that you were able to. I take that same experience and then just build on it just here now in the United States. Um, that's really cool. And uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, so we're working with very vulnerable populations. I mean, that's what we go, you know, that we go to work with. So HIV in America looks a little bit different than abroad, but um, you know, that we know that our same gender loving men, um, are more impacted, especially men of color. Um, and then, um, women of color mm -hmm. or men of color, they're just disproportionately affected. It, it really goes back to, you know, the social determinants of health and social inequity and social injustice. The things that we are in our nation really starting to think about and consider, uh, not just family studies people, not just the folks who are experiencing, but I think it's really coming to light for everybody. Yeah. Um, so I do a great deal of work with the LGBTQ community. Um, uh, and they're fabulous. <laughs> so it's, it's really, um, rewarding to be able to be supportive, uh, to them. Um, you know, and I'm in North Carolina, so we're a part of the South. Yeah. Um, so we're kind of, we're kind of the Northern part of the South, uh, you know, and, but I mean, we definitely, I mean, if you look at a chart with our HIV and STIs and hepatitis C rates, we're, we're not exactly holding our head up high. Yeah. Um, we've got a lot of work. Yeah. Well, it sounds like they've got a good person <laughs> to help um, with, <laughs> with doing it with, I mean, they need more, we need more people like you who are just like not afraid to just jump in there and start working with people, like you said, alongside people um, and, and really put it in the work. So is there, is there anything like if you um, had any advice for, students now or new professionals or professionals who are changing careers? Like what would that be based on your professional experiences? Um, I think that a couple of things that I've learned and I'm not saying this isn't scary, but it's okay to take a career risk. Um, it's okay to say, you know what, this isn't as rewarding or fulfilling as what I thought it would be. Maybe I want to try this. Um, you know, if you've got your undergraduate degree, you know, going back to graduate school may not be the answer, but it may be the answer. Uh, but maybe trying a different role. Um, uh, let's just be honest, HDFS type roles, you're not going to get rich yeah. <laughs> typically being in this. So you have to check your values. Uh, you know, how do you prioritize? Um, you know, somebody who gets a business degree may be starting out making 40 and you might be starting out making 25 or 30. Um, you know, just, especially if you're a very young undergraduate, have some realistic perspective on what that looks like. And yeah, so I, I don't know, I guess that that's just, I, it's not ever been about the money. The money is great. Mm -hmm. Don't get me wrong. But what it's been about for me is, do I like what I'm doing? Am I happy? Um, is this fulfilling to me? And if not, um, deuces, I'll go find something else. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. You, you're, you're, yeah. I mean, HFS 
people, they do a range of things. Some of them are making a lot of right. money, but, but yeah, a lot of us are not, <laughs> you know, yeah, you know, a lot right. of people in the field and, and yeah, it is in my career as an HDFS class day one, like I have them do, um, kind of this value sort because you can't prioritize everything at the same time, you know? So you do have to decide like, you know, like what is most important to you? And I always jokingly say, you know, sometimes I'm jealous of people who can just, they don't care what they do as long as they can just go, you know, kind of work for their day and then they get a good paycheck. They don't care. Unfortunately, I'm not like that. <laughs> right. I yeah. Really care. Um, and I have no judgment on them because sometimes I'm a little jealous. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, if you're the type of person where it's really important that you feel very connected to what you're doing um, and really excited about it, then you know, sometimes there might be some trade-offs if what you happen to do is in one of the helping professions, which don't always yield a lot of financial rewards. So I think that's yeah, great it, advice. And, and I, I wouldn't let your degree define your career because our degree program is, I mean, it's, it's very well-rounded. It's probably the most well-rounded education you can get. I mean, you learn about yourself, you learn about others, you learn about families. If you can think think systematically about your approach to thing it doesn't matter what field you go in that the education that you get you you can apply that and i think that sometimes when you i i can let me speak for myself when i was younger i didn't really necessarily understand that like i said that first job that i took out of college it made sense to me because it was a job that was in business but there was a connection to hdfs mm -hmm. um but every single job that you have I think you can apply some of the skills that that you've gotten from your degree program. You know, it's even better if you're if we can work in our degree because obviously our our skill set is is very much so uh, to support uh, families, right? So obviously that 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 should be our goal ultimately. But if you find yourself in a position of business, I think that as a leader and a manager. Um, I was able to support a lot of the families of the individuals who worked with me um, from an understanding standpoint and also encourage a lot of women to ask for a pay raise. Women never ask for pay raises. Women never think they're ready for a promotion. A dude will ask for a promotion. Look, I love you guys. Don't get me wrong. But a, guy will ask, a guy will ask for a promotion even if he's not ready because he wants to, to grow into a position. And women have a tendency to stand back and never ask for the opportunity until they're probably overqualified for it. So you know, being in business management, encouraging women to, you know, speak up for themselves, to advocate, to, to try it, to apply for that position. There's ways to take our knowledge and our understanding in human development and apply it to, to whatever uh, career or job we, we end up in. Definitely. I remember being, I'm at, and I'll just, I'll show my nerdiness now. I mean, I definitely remember being in middle school obsessing, like worrying about what major I would choose, which this is just ridiculous when I think about it. And then, you know, and then like what career I was going to, I have had an obsession with taking these career assessments. And, um, you know, I was just so worried. Oh my gosh, what if I pick the wrong thing, the wrong thing, the wrong thing. Um, I have to pick the right thing. And I think both pieces of your advice really touch on the fact that, hey, um, you don't have to have yourself in a box. <laughs> you can think outside of the box. Many people work outside of their degree, whatever that means. <laughs> I mean, many people do that. 
And, um, and two, yeah, just because you pick one thing, that does not mean that you have to be in this one job for the rest of your life. And that, you know, if you stop liking it, you can never change. Um, so we're always changing and growing and developing and getting new experiences and you, all of your jobs have built on, you know, built on each other. So I think that's great advice. Yeah. Which, and I feel I, I've, I am thankful every day. I feel blessed every day. I thank all of my uh, mentors, my fellow graduate students. Most of them are doctors now. <laughs> They're professors yeah. now. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, just the folks and, and all, like, I was so supported at the University of Missouri um, in the HCFS program that it, it, it really helped me with my confidence and feel like I could go out and I can make a difference. And I'm just so thankful and appreciative every day. Um, for for the history of support, my education, and the job that I have today. Yeah, you're definitely making a difference. And I appreciate you taking the time out of your very busy schedule with everything going on right now to, to share with students and, you know, professionals who might be thinking about switching careers. I, your, your story has been super inspiring to me, and I know that other people will find it inspiring as well. Um, is there anything else you want to share before we close? Uh, no, wear a mask, guys. Come on, I'm working on COVID duties right now. Please wear a mask. Please wear a mask. Yeah, I've got the mask up on my Facebook right now. I'm like, please wear a mask. Yes. <laughs> well, thank yes. you. Thank you so much, Haley. All right. Take care, Erica. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the HDFS Careers Podcast. If you have recommendations for HDFS or other family science alumni to interview, please reach out to me at hdfscareers.com. Don't worry if they're not working in a job that would normally be considered in the field of family science. I'm interested in hearing a variety of stories, especially if they're working outside of academia. If you like this podcast and want other people to be able to find it, please rate it and review it in iTunes or share it on social media. Until next time, keep exploring your future possibilities.